I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Waterfowl migrate through four flyaways in the United States. The Pacific Flyway, the Central Flyway, the Mississippi Flyway, and arguably one of the more difficult flyways to hunt, the Atlantic Flyway. Way down at the southernmost part of that flyway in the U.S. lies the state of Florida. A state mostly known for its tourist attractions where the cypress swamps and cattle ponds are regularly overlooked due to the hustle and bustle of everyday business. Although not known for its waterfowl hunting, a limit of wood ducks, teal, or ringnecks can be scratched out with a little bit of work. Today, we're joined by Newton Cook, president of United Waterfowlers of Florida, to talk about the opportunities, not only duck hunting in Florida, but preserving what we have left of our wetlands in the state. Newton, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I've uh, duck hunted in some of the best of the world in Arkansas, Mississippi, and uh, West Tennessee. I killed my first duck at Real Foot Lake in 1955, and uh like most people who kill their first duck. I can remember it like yesterday. And 1955 was a long time ago. And it was a blackjack. And I shot it with my brand new 12 gauge Higgins spoke action shotgun that I got for Christmas in 1954. <laughs> and in January 1955, my dad and uncle took my brother and I up to Real Foot Lake. And Real Foot, of course, is a classic duck hunting venue has been for two centuries. And uh, we rode the old real foot paddle oar boats out there. You actually rode the boat facing the way you're going because there's so many stumps in the lake that they invented an oar where you look the way you go when you oar. And uh, there's still a few antiques up there, but we rode, broke sheet ice down the canal to the sawgrass. A couple of old blinds were tacked up there and it was daylight come and the ducks jumped and after a while this poor lone duck come flying across the decoys and I shot it and it missed it now that's for the J.C. Higgins boat action 12 gauge I ratcheted it turned around killed him going away <laughs> <laughs> I almost fell out of the blind trying to get to the boat to get to that duck my first duck and I heard my uncle over in the blind next to me over there holler, who the hell is shooting them damn trash ducks? <laughs> we don't shoot nothing but greenhead mallards. <laughs> well, when you come to Florida, guess what? They ain't no greenhead mallards yeah. <laughs> except a few up in the panhandle areas. Uh, we do shoot, as you say, the uh, blue wing teal which I had never seen until I came to Florida because they all leave up north and come down here. Right now, the big blue-winged teal flights are flying down the coast, uh, hundreds at a flight. They will not touch Florida. They're headed for the islands. And uh, they're so these blue-winged teal will pick up and fly for hours and hours and hours and never touch down. They fly across the ocean. It's an amazing uh, migration. But we do get a large number in Florida, and that is our kind of a prize bird. Locally, we have the wood ducks. Uh, we have Florida mallards or model ducks. And then we have a new duck 
which has become extremely important to Florida duck hunting, and that's the black belly tree duck, which is Central American migrant that's come here. It has added a tremendous amount of bagged birds of the large-sized ducks, where you can kill six of them if you want to, and instead of taking home little teal and wood duck, you can also now take home a really large duck, which is the best eating duck, incidentally. Uh, so that's Florida hunting today, and we have we are blessed, despite all the complaints you might hear, having hunted in Arkansas, Mississippi, Ohio, Tennessee. We are blessed with more public hunting land, marsh, river, lake per hunter here than any of those major duck hunting venues. You know, I was going to say, not only that black belly whistling duck is very important to our uh, hunting opportunities here, but man, is that even more important to that pot in my belly? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really, really good eating duck. It's one of the ducks that you should never rest out. You can cook that whole duck. The legs are actually, they make great Hmm. uh, uh, buffalo (laughs) legs, I guess you would call them. (laughs) I've never tried that. I have to try that. Uh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. We always uh, plucked them whole and wrapped them in bacon. We put them in the yeah. smoker. I thought y'all skin them. Yeah, skin, them. skin them. You don't pluck them. Skin them, yeah. I'd rather pick them. Skin them, wrap them I did them that with wood ducks last year. I, I don't think I'm ever going to breast out another wood duck. Oh, no, them no, off. no, man. Pluck that bad boy. Mm-hmm. Pluck it. Yeah. Get a little torch. Yep. Yeah, wood ducks, you definitely should pluck wood ducks. Uh, and teal, too, for that matter, although most people breast a lot of them out. Uh I, I, pluck, hole. I mean, I, I hate to tell you how many mallards I plucked because I'd be the youngest kid in camp and they'd come in and throw that pile right in front of you and then your farm would get red and bruised. Get... <laughs> I get my little five-year-old son out here after a duck hunt out here plucking ducks with the rest of us. Yeah. I always just... think plucking's not that bad until you get down to the end of the season you're like, all right, I got I to gotta buy one of those machines. <laughs> I can throw this thing in. And it plucks it for me. Yeah, the rich people coming across the bridge there to Memphis uh, on uh, I-55. There's two or three other stations, filling stations and places. They had those plucking machines. And maybe a lot of people lined up there about 1130 in the morning getting their ducks plucked. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about United Waterfowlers and, and what you do with United Waterfowlers. What they're all about, I guess you could say. Well, United Waterfowlers was started about the year 2001. Actually, we're 20 years old last year, which is incredible for our small uh, not-for-profit. Uh, it's just a state, just Florida. Uh, it was started for one single reason. Uh, a handful of duck hunters, not too far from here, over on 46 and 95 was the first gathering, uh, got tired of losing marshes to uh, no hunting or restricted duck hunting, uh, and sanctuary city, sanctuary uh, islands, uh, the intercoastal particularly, uh, and they needed a voice at the FWC meetings particularly, and that was what the founding was. We need a voice at the agencies to speak for duck hunters, and this small group of people uh, met, formed it, incorporated it, and uh, within two years, we had a pretty damn good voice because we got a lot of stuff done 
Uh, if you goose hunt in this state today, that's United Waterfowlers. Now, you say there's not a lot of goose hunting. Well, there's pretty good goose hunting uh, Canadian uh, in some places up in the, the panhandle. That, uh, you can hunt today. You couldn't hunt before. And I've had the odd person from Merritt Island <coughs> say, you know, why couldn't I shoot that goose? And I keep telling a white goose. I said, you should have shot him because it's been legal in Florida now for about eight years. <laughs> uh, but not only that, we opened up the SDAs. I mean, SDAs uh, just a few years ago. Uh, we had something over 3,000 hunters go through the SDAs. Uh, 15% of all the ducks killed in Florida were killed on three SDAs one year. Uh, right now, the habitat's not that good because they're going through some problems with lake water, running lake water from. But the fact is, we opened up uh, at that time and for a number of years, and it will be again because they're restoring the SDAs. Uh, probably one of the top, if not the top, duck hunting venues in North America, public hunting. We have people coming from all over the country to hunt there. So our goal is open places up for the duck hunters and reduce the red tape. That's what we do. You know, one of the things that we hear constantly complained about is access issues and then for the places that we can hunt, overcrowding. But as I think you already alluded to, as far as public access for waterfowl, it's fantastic. People hear the stories of like hunting flooded timber up around Stuttgart and places like that in Arkansas. But what they don't realize is if you want to get in there, get out your checkbook. Or you've got to become pretty darn savvy with meeting people up there who will tell you who a landowner is so that you can call them on the phone and you have to ask them, like, I just want to go in there once because I see birds in your fields right now and hope they'll say yes. But that's a lot of work, a lot of driving around. You know, you can't just, there's no planning. You're going up there privateering and trying to hope you get them. And it, it can be done, but it's a lot of work. And now, then you got to creep on those, you got to creep on those birds, which makes it a real challenge, right? So we have this, this wonderful opportunity in Florida but I don't know how do we communicate that message to the folks here, just how, that this is the good times. Well, we I think United Waterfowlers over the years, is uh, uh, you lose a few, but we've won a lot more than we've lost. Uh, and we, we always tell people, listen, nearly all of us are, are duck hunters over many years and are, have hunted a lot of places in the, in the United States and uh, – some of our members, of course, go to Argentina and everywhere to duck hunt there. They're just uh, that dedicated. And I could tell you, very few places can you just hook your boat up and go to a public lake or marsh and dump it in and go duck hunting and not have any restrictions. And Florida is full of those places. Uh, sure, they can be a little more crowded, uh, but they're there. And I don't think I know a duck hunter who's really dedicated who cannot, in the course of a season, uh, have some pretty good hunts in this state. Where I can tell you, you can live in Arkansas and you won't get anywhere near a place where you can have a pretty good hunt. Now, I'll say this question goes out to Jordan and Breyer. We had a pretty decent season last year. Yeah, duck absolutely. Yeah. How many times do we get run up on by another duck hunter? Um, a couple. Maybe twice. It depends on what you mean. Like, like, like it wasn't run up on another hunter while we were on the water. Had, had someone come up on us or we came up on someone else. While we were hunting. Like yeah. We're, we're either, up. yeah. 
Uh, I ran across actually most of the time it happened like the last weekend was yeah. the most I'd seen anybody. But it really wasn't that bad. I, I don't remember a time in the well, morning that I was out there that we actually had somebody no, come and, upon and us. And that's all part of where, you know, you get people that are like, the duck hunting in Florida's, you know, pardon my French, but gone to shit. And you're like, I don't know, have you put in the time to, to I mean, we, like Newton said, we have so much public access. Have you put in the time to go check this lake or that lake or this? Like, you don't have to go here. If you put in the time to scout, and you find the food, and you find the ducks, it's extremely easy to get to an area and hunt it and not run across, you know, 15 other hunters. Well, the other thing is, is in this area anyways, everybody that duck hunts, they duck hunt on Emerald Marsh. Right. That's where they go. <laughs> they go, all right, we're going to find the spot over here, and everybody's going to bounce them around to us. You really don't have to scout Emerald if you're in the right, right area. Although, if you do scout Emerald you can be in the right area. You can. But I'm saying you don't have to because they're just going to bounce them around that place. And they don't really spill off of there too much. You, know, you guys touched on the, the work, and I'm the least accomplished waterfowl in the room by a long shot. But there's something just – we spend a lot of time outside. We spend a lot of time oh, yeah. in the woods, in the water, fishing, hunting, small game, large game. It just – it really doesn't end for us. And as a result, even when you're not scouting, you're scouting. You like, yeah. I mean, how many oh, times, yeah. how many times we out there picking up trash, or when we were on small game hunts, like, hey, wood ducks over there. Yeah. Right? I mean, how, <laughs> how many times? <laughs> heck, we we're squirrel hunting, taking shots at wood ducks and setting up yeah. on them, right? I mean, so I, the, I the whole point is, I think a lot of folks struggle because they decide. It's duck season next week. Maybe we should go out and, you know, where are you going to go? Well, I know, I know there's ducks in Emerald Marsh, so we're going to go get in line. Yeah. As opposed to, well, on Thursday, also, on Thursday night, we're going to go get in line so we can be the first one around. Yeah. And it don't open Saturday, you know. Well, I'll tell you this, my, my co-worker's got to be about tired of me right now being chest deep in a hole going, which direction them them black pillar whistle ducks going? Not even looking, just yeah. hear them fly over. <laughs> <clears throat> where are they headed? I know. <laughs> My coworkers are like, we'll be out there doing something, and I'll hear what, and I'm looking around. Where's the wood ducks? Yeah, they're they're like, we looking for a duck. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, yeah, yes, I am. <laughs> well, we have obviously the the, pop, the the places that are known to have ducks uh, attract the duck hunters, and uh, we have places like Merritt Island that you know can become a zoo uh, down there, and and, and uh, the feds have pretty strict regulations and it still becomes a zoo uh it's because guys and, can't and read the thing map. about it is most of those people all know each other yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh it's i mean i could tell you the sdas are just incredibly uh uh problem problem problematic because of uh, the crowding but we purposely load the sdas uh the whole objective is to put as many people as we possibly can onto the sdas to get the ducks off of because they would actually attract the ducks from far away as the lake. And yeah. They will they will build up on the STA to the thousands. I mean, literally thousands of ducks mm. if they're not uh, if they're not harassed a bit. And yeah. uh, this is going to be a difficult year because about half the SDAs are closed to construction, mm. and the marshes are still perfectly <laughs> attractive to the ducks. Uh, speaking of that, didn't they start that like an opening weekend or something last year? 
I think I remember reading something where they started construction. It was going to be like opening weekend. All the construction. On one of the There's always construction on an SDA. The SDA is under a federal court order to clean the phosphorus out of the Everglades agricultural area. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, lately, they've been putting a lot of lake water through it, which is very polluted and turns the SDAs into more cattails than open marsh. And if you listen to me Thursday at the uh, South Florida Water Management District meeting, when I did my public comment, I was berating the uh, Water Management District for for uh, putting so much lake water through the SDAs, which they started about five years ago. And we told them then it was going to be bad for it. So it's going to go cattails. And sure enough, uh, now we have a lot of cattails. And and with the rains they had last fall, literally blew the SDAs out. And, and they have to go back to functioning. So the construction has to be done. And they're not built for duck hunters. They're built... Uh, for the federal court order. They're stormwater treatment areas. Stormwater yeah. treatment areas. And the, and they do a good job when they're, I mean, we at one time, the, uh, they were taking uh, water in at about 80 parts per billion off the farms <clears throat> and about 120 off the lake. And it, going out was uh, averaging about 18 parts per billion uh, when things were going quite nicely. Of course, a big storm can come along or anything can change that, but. But today they're they're so blown out. Some of them are putting out fifty. There's only SDA three four is still doing a pretty good job. It's about eighteen or sixteen. But they have a sixteen thousand acre flow equalization basement just north of it that helps slow the water going in there, and that's why it does so well. So it's a very complex. I mean, we could spend two hours on SCAs, maybe two weeks. But the main thing is we got the public on there, and the South Florida Management District has been very cooperative. They've worked with us every year, getting more and more people out there based on what they can do uh, under the construction and the uh, court order. So there's no complaining about that. It's just the way you have to live with that. And right nearby, you've got the WCAs, which are about 300,000 acres of great duck hunting marsh. Uh, and you just put your boat in the water and go hunting. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and right north of there, and right on top of SDA 301, you have the Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge, which this year they gave us for the first time in 50 years not only the deer hunting, got a part of it, but also they opened up the northern two-thirds to duck hunting, but it's paddle-in only, but that's okay. We have access to some area that hasn't been hunted in, in decades. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that incidentally, that's United Waterfowlers of Florida who worked on that for ten years. <laughs> so, uh, we can't complain about Florida about places to go duck hunting. Yeah. The coast, the, the salt water hunting here is incredible. Oh, you absolutely. hear a lot about it. Uh, the Panhandle up there has incredible uh, salt water. Uh, the redheads and, and divers offshore. Uh, oh man, the re- I know. I always wonder why our we're limited with two 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 bluebills, right? Oh yeah. The unfortunately the bluebills are, are the only species, major species, that's down. Uh and they're down and so the limit's been dropped to two. Uh, uh, at least the last time I look, it might be one before this thing's over with. Well good lord. I thought, you, I thought you get it out was on, one. Yeah, it could Maybe be, it is uh, one. I apologize. I'm pretty sure. Maybe yeah. now yeah. One. one. But you know, it's I I understand that the, the count is down. But man, you go out there on St. Joe Bay. Um and usually it's right after duck season. And drive across St. Joe Bay and take a look at the rafters of bluebills out there. 
I don't know if there's a million of them, but it's in the it's it's in the hundreds of thousands of birds. They must all be there, and the rest in Louisiana, because they're just they're legion. Well, the problem is, of course, is they are maybe all grouped at that spot, but they used to be like that all along the coast. I mean, mm. uh, they're around the Merritt Island area. There, I mean, you could almost walk across them and get from from uh, you know from out across the, the uh, estuary. Are they getting beat up by the by the white geese up there? Are they losing? Are they? What's uh, what's beating up the bluebills? Well, I don't think anyone knows. They actually, uh, I I believe they they're breeding areas up in the uh, north. You know, not in the uh, uh, up in the forest, uh, not down into uh, the Midwest. You know, in the uh, normal pothole area, because uh, they're divers, and uh, so it's, they have a different kind of breeding situation than the teal and the and the mallards and all, which are doing really well, quite thank you. Uh, however, I will say this, in the central part of the country, uh, we had a drought this year, big time, and there's a good chance the flight out of the central fly, uh, flyway is gonna be a lot less. Mm. The Atlantic flyway looks okay, but when you have a big drought up north, we have fewer ducks, I mean. But it is a real mystery about the bluebills, and uh, they're very concerned because normally, you know, they for years and years and years and years, there was absolutely no problem with them. And then all of a sudden, they started a sharp decline. So. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, ask your thoughts on the North Shore Lake Apopka, that marsh. In the news. In the yeah. news. <laughs> In the news. Yeah, we've got the, <clears throat> got the meeting coming up next week. Next so. week. I yep. need to listen. If you haven't already registered on the... Uh, that is Tuesday, correct? If I remember correctly, it's Tuesday, the 16th. Mm. No, it's not Tuesday. It's the 16th. So that is. It's on the 16th. Thursday. 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 Thursday okay, from yeah. 6 to 8 p.m. You need to register through FWC and the Eventbrite link in order to attend the meeting online. Um, <clears throat> so then you can get in there and, and be part of that meeting. And I encourage all you guys to do so. So this is going to come out. On Monday the 13th, so you should maybe have a couple days left. I'm not sure if they close that or not up until the meeting, but you guys should get on there and, and definitely register and, and become part of that uh, Lake Apopka Water Management District meeting because the north shore of Lake Apopka is easily the best duck hunting in the area we're in right now that you can't even, you can't hunt. Outside of Emerald, yeah. apparently. <laughs> Well, the only reason it's not better than Emerald is because you can't hunt there. Mm -hmm. That's well, why it's better. <laughs> but that's that's the the place I go when I'm like, well, have these ducks migrated down yet? Then you ride over there, go through the wildlife drive. And you're and like, are they here? Are they here? Yeah, with binoculars. <laughs> Which one's that? The uh, Apaka, of course, is, is probably one of the first United Waterfowlers projects way back. And we worked with the FWC and actually uh, got a testing on uh, some of the model ducks. And they tested hot from the uh, uh, pesticides and fungicides that were used in the vegetable fields right where that is now. And it banned hunting because they were terrified that somebody get poisoned by a duck uh, that they were shot at, uh, in a, the Popka marshes. Of course, the lake was useless. It was dead, dead lake. But the meeting, as we all know, coming up is about hydrilla in Lake Opaka. Mm -hmm. Hallelujah. 
Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, people are complaining about it. <laughs> because if we got hallelujah, we're going to have ducks, as they say. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as I know, and I'm having this double-checked, uh, you can hunt the lake. You just can't hunt the north shore. Correct. Yes, sir. Uh, and uh, if we get hydrilla topped out on that lake, there will be some pretty good duck hunting out there. So I, I urge everyone that can get make that meeting. Uh, and if you're a duck hunter, I suggest you uh, comment B, Leave the hydrilla alone. Let it grow. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, that blows my mind. People are complaining about hydrilla because I've been running around that area since the late 80s. And in the late 80s, you'd have done backflips if you'd seen, you know, pretty much any aquatic vegetation sticking up through that water. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say to me, the fact that the hydrilla is even growing in Lake Apopka is, says so much. Because it's, you know, there, like Jim said, there's actually aquatic vegetation growing in the lake. Yes. Yes. And then, you know, I think the main thing where people come, especially with like the Harris chain, they're like all these like pleasure boaters and everything. Like it gets in their way. How many people pleasure boat on like a popka? It's the bass boats <laughs> yeah. on like Harris. But the bass boats, the bass fishermen enjoy the hydrilla as well. Oh, yeah. yeah well, absolutely. I'm not saying about the hydrilla, but I'm saying trying to duck hunt on the lake, on the Harris chain, and they're covered up in bass boats. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> we don't argue about that. I like everybody. Yeah. I mean, everybody they're trying to have a place to play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we yes, uh, we the, can boaters, the boaters can be a problem for the duck hunters, but the fact is, is uh, uh, we want to be able to see all people who want to recreate go out and use the public land. Absolutely. And if we start saying, well, the buck, uh, bass boaters can go here and the duck hunters can go there, uh, we start having uh, yeah. well, difficulties. W- whether it be us or them, you know, one way or the other. They're buying equipment that's going to get taxed that puts money back into conservation as well as us. So, you know, as long as there's money going back into conservation, I don't think we should be complaining at all. It's uh, it's everybody's water, not yeah. just the duck hunter's oh, yeah. water or the bass fisherman's water or the pleasure boater's water. Uh, but it, it boils down to a matter of respect, and that's not just between pleasure boaters and duck hunters or pleasure boaters and bass fishermen or bass it's it's you know duck hunters to duck hunters fishermen to fishermen pleasure boaters to pleasure boaters you see those uh tiffs all the time and you know i it's just give everybody their space that's all it takes there's a lot of those they're huge lakes man i mean i've had just duck hunting on lake harris and you got you know, four or five bass boats right there around you, and you're like, um, well, we're trying to hunt. Where can we shoot? Well, there's a bass boat over there. There's another one over there. They're all around us. What are we, where are we going to shoot at? You know what I mean? That's safe for everybody. Right. But Absolutely. I think, I don't know, Jim had kind of hit, not necessarily earlier, but pre-podcast on the, I don't know if we can handle these, RHAs. RHAs, restricted hunting areas is, as several people have heard me say before, the FWC needs a higher publicity guy because uh, anytime you say restricted hunting, you immediately turn off about two-thirds, if not 100% of the hunters that are listening. Uh, restricted hunting areas, uh, there's a reason for the FWC's legal staff uh, wanting restricted hunting area rule. And the reason is simple. We've been through four negotiations and there's one going on now I understand that I don't have a lot of information on. With cities and towns, Castleberry, Hunter's Lake, a couple others, 
who've come in and said they want sanctuaries, basically. They want no hunting, and they don't want any hunting anywhere around their towns and cities uh, and water. The FWC has one rule that they can give, and that's sanctuary, which means basically no hunting, no fishing, nothing. You can sanctuary. You go to Tampa Bay, you can't even get cash allure up on the uh, islands where there are bird sanctuaries. So the FWC wants to remove that rule. They want to get rid of it because they don't like it, and they want to replace it with a rule that they call restricted hunting areas. Uh, and that rule would apply to all these little towns and cities and along the waterways that are asking for no hunting in their backyards to some degree. The FWC will write that rule and pass it through the commission, and it will be a law. The next negotiation they do, they will hand the city or town that rule and say, here it is, you comply, and we will consider this for your town. The rule is written in a way that protects a lot of hunting, and that is the controversy that we hear because not understanding we can't protect all hunting is a problem but it protects a lot of hunting, particularly the hunting on waters of the state, which is the most important. If the FWC doesn't have that rule to hand to these cities, a city is going to sue because they're not going to like the negotiation, which almost happened. That goes in front of an administrative judge. The administrative judge will then write the rule. Administrative judges are not normally duck hunters or any kind of hunters. And their writing of the rule is not going to be friendly to hunters. If you so, don't believe that, just watch what happens to the airboaters. Yeah. I think what we're talking about here is judicial, judicial precedence. None of us are attorneys. But off podcast, we were discussing how once there is established case law and the next case gets brought by the next municipality, that judge is going to look back at the precedent and say, this is already established. There is a rule. Here you go. And most of the time, as I understand it, that is how a lot of law is formed. Sometimes precedent is broken. Most of the time it's not. And that seems to be, from the conversations, I hate to use the terms arguments, that seems to be the thing that's missing with a lot of folks, is that if a case is brought before a judge, and if that judge provides a really f disfavorable ruling, they have pro then provided the recipe for every other municipality to come and get it. Ironically, one of the arguments about RHAs is that by establishing a rule through FWC, it creates a recipe for municipalities to come along and establish these things. So what I think seems missing is, given enough time, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. By giving FWC the ability to establish the rule before somebody else does, it is much more likely to be less damning. 
So I think, I don't know if it was during the podcast or before the podcast, I think everybody in the room, if we say, what do you really want? And I think we would all agree, I want to be able to hunt anywhere, anytime, pretty much for any reason. That's the, the magic ideal. But it can't exist for a whole number of reasons, right? Because we have to have certain seasons because of breeding. and you to, I mean, there's all kinds of different rules. But um, whether you're for an RHA, well, they already exist. That's all, that's the, I don't know how many people know, that are listening to this even know that. This isn't something new. They already exist. They're just codifying it, right? But whether you are for the codification or not for the codification, it's still coming, right? And all, I think whether you're on both sides, either, either side of that issue, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily happy with it, but sometimes you have to accept that this alternative provides at least the devil that you know because the devil that you don't know might, you know, tell Come you around bring, and bite you. Yeah, not, and not even give you the Vaseline. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a choice that nobody likes to make. That's the other part. I mean, I don't think anybody likes the word restricted hunting in the, in the same sentence. But the power is in writing the rule. Yeah. I prefer the FWC legal team writing the rule and not an administrative judge. Right. Well, if the administrative, we talked about the 300-foot rule and direction and all this other stuff. If it goes before an administrative judge and that administrative does, judge says 1,000 yards, the same guys right now that are really screaming about 300 feet are going to be begging for 500 feet. I mean, I'm not trying to make enemies here, but this is this is just, and I realize that I think of all the waterfowlers out there and people that are in there. I'm, I'm probably in the minority in my in my line of thinking, but I'm I am much more scared of somebody who has no interest in what we do making the rule versus somebody who does have an interest in what we do making the rule. Well, that's very true, and you also have to remember this does not apply to just waterfowling. It applies to deer, turkey, everything else that you hunt around. Um, uh, uh, urban area and this is going to be a continuous problem for FWC legal if they're into these hundreds of negotiation which is going to be in time and we're already done six or eight and 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 there's more to come uh so if we have a rule passed by the commission that is precedent and if it gets to a judge the lawyer hands the judge the rule as passed by the commission, which is basically the legislature for hunting rules. And the judge is going to say, we have a law. And that's, that's it, and that's going to be applied. But if you get in front of the judge and the judge says, what's the legislation? There is no legislation. Or He's going to make his own. Yeah. And each case has been negotiated. The judge has no precedent. So that judge will make the rule, write the rule. I don't know what it'll be, but I'll bet you it's not going to be good for the hunters. When that judge makes that rule, the next judge it comes up to, because it's still not a law, it's just a rule that she wrote for that town, or he, that's a precedent, 
And the next judge will say, well, we already have a ruling on this from Judge uh, Smith. So apply it. So we're stuck with that rule forever. If we let our side write the rule, the FWC legal, we're going to be a lot better off. So that's just been my stand on it. Now, am I happy about having to restrict hunting on anywhere? No. But legal knows from the negotiations what we can get from these towns and cities that they will agree to without going in front of that judge. And if we get to where we're asking the towns and cities to agree to something that is totally off the wall, you know, like some of these proposals have been, the towns and cities are going to say no because they don't have to accept what the FWC sends them. They can just go to that judge. So it's a very difficult issue. It's an emotional issue. God, I understand. I mean, I hate any time to be on the side of, of uh, so-called restricted hunting, but actually it's more protective because yeah, we're protecting yeah. state waters. We're fighting yeah. like crazy to protect state waters. I'm sorry you're not going to be able to go up in the canals and shoot ducks in, 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 in Pocono, Florida. You know, yeah. It ain't going to happen. Uh, and, uh, anymore, because if you do, you're going to have a complaint and we're going to be back in the soup. So, but what we do want to is we want to be sure that it's waters of a state that duck hunters can be able to hunt. And yeah. tell me if I'm wrong, but from, you know, what I've read or heard it, what FWC has proposed is actually more complicated than, than most would think for, you know, the town or whatever itself, whereas, it, you know, it has to be posted on a certain size sign for every 500 foot and, and all that. And, you know, honestly, you think you come to most subdivisions, these people have these nice manicured lawns and if they're on the water, how many people want this big sign in their backyard? Well, not only that, the town has to meet a lot of prerogatives. Yeah. They, have to, they, have to be, they have to enforce the law, incidentally. <laughs> That's another thing. They enforce the rule. Uh, the town has to meet some, some pretty stringent uh, uh, steps in order to get the, it applied. And that's important because a lot of towns are going to look at it and say, that's just not worth it. But sooner or later, there's going to be protection of these canals and homes that are being built. We don't like it, but it's going to happen. Yeah. Now, we're going to write the rule, or the judge is going to yeah. write the rule. I'll take my guys every time. Yeah. yeah. Well, the one sign that it might be okay is, is that, and I'm not at every meeting for certain or, or involved in every discussion, but if the if folks at FWC that I've spoken with are to be believed, and I've got no reason to think they aren't, a lot of the, the municipalities that are considering this, they don't like it either. And the reason that they don't like it is because it's relatively expensive. They have to carry all the weight. They have to maintain it. They have to enforce it. And, of course, if they don't properly maintain the restrictions, then the rule that they're supposed to enforce is unenforceable. You know, it become, it, it's, it's a problem for them, too. So if the towns don't like it and the hunters don't like it, poor FWC is in a pinch. But I guess as a sportsman, like well, if the if the towns that are considering this don't like the fact that it's expensive and blah blah blah, then they're at least heading down the right road. Absolutely, which puts it in our favor. We have, but we have. Do, I know I've been doing a lot of the the chatting, but amongst the four of us, we all have different feelings about it. About what's right, what's wrong. We're not, we're not in consensus. Um, but it does speak to just the overall problem with having a thousand people, you know, a day, either Big being problem. born or moving to your state. I, I can, listen, Lake Toho, 
is kind of a hot button issue. You know. And there's that big development that sooner or later is going to be built on that south uh, east coast. What can you do? Go down to your friggin' county zoning and stop them from changing rules to houses demand, demand along setbacks. the lake banks. Yep. And until you do that, the issue is going to continue to be a problem and grow. And I hate, and I, I wish I, I say that knowing that the odds of stopping the development uh, on the lake banks is very small. Yeah. I mean, people yeah, got a million dollars in their pocket and they got million dollar lawyers and these places, unfortunately, are going to be developed over the next yeah. 50 years. What we have to do is get rules in place to protect the waters of the state. If we do that, then, and if you let the people know, the developers know, and if they have it where it's uh, broadcast, uh, that if you buy a house in this particular subdivision, you should know you're buying a house on the waters of the state, and there will be recreation, airboats, fishing. Hallelujah. There'll yeah. be noise that you ain't going to like at four in the morning. No, it, should yeah. be, it should be in the closing documents as far as I'm concerned. Like you and, sign yeah. off that you're aware. But but you have to fight a battle that you can win. You cannot get it. You, yeah. you know, you can't get over in the ditches over there and start playing, telling people you want to shoot ducks in their backyard or catch fish or run airboats up the canals. You've got to go where you can win. Waters of the United States, waters of the state is public water. We can win that war. Yeah. Just yeah. like along a lot of the lake banks and places, the high water mark for is the mean high water mark is public land and, and you can hunt mm-hmm. right up to that. We just came through a big battle on that three years ago. Every four or five years, some big landowner uh, wants to move the fences towards the lake, you know, and they, they have to change that high water mark to do that. And it gets in the legislature and we've beat it three times so far, but that's the kind of things we have to work on hard. You know, we can't, start standing up demanding people shoot ducks in people's canals. We got to be able to stand up and fight where waters of the state, the mean high water mark is public land. That's where we can fight and we can win. Yeah. I think too, as hunters, we got to kind of recognize that that canal is probably not the best place to hunt either. (laughs) Uh, It's that desire for a greenhead mallard in Florida. (laughs) No, that's nothing but a golf course. Yeah. Going to Disney. (laughs) I said, I'll tell you a tip right now. You want to kill a greenhead mallard in Florida? I could have easily done it at Disney World. All I needed was my my right hand, and I, I made a circle with my fingers, and I held a piece of popcorn on the other side of those fingers. He stuck his head right. I could have wrung his neck and thrown him in the bottom of the stroller, but I didn't. Restraint. Restraint. Of you. That, that was uh, 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 self-control. Yeah. He'd, been, he'd have been tasty, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. Good. All he's been eating is popcorn. Bunch of good duck fat on him. Popcorn mm. and bread. Yeah. Mm. But so, Newton, what are some of the biggest issues facing waterfowlers in the state of Florida right now? Oh, right now we got some uh, Lake Okeechobee, which, of course, is the number one probably venue for duck hunting and fishing, single venue uh, in the state, is having the Army Corps of Engineers is rewriting the management of the lake plan. The last plan was Lohr's Lake Okeechobee regulation schedule, 2008, which which I was involved in because I was on the Lake Rack for the Water Management District. And at that time, we had to take a foot off the top of the lake, or they did. I, 
I'm just a guy sitting there at the table, you know, no power, but my opinion. Uh, and a lot that actually came from Katrina tearing levees down in New Orleans, so they had to take it off. But it was very caused real problems on the lake because when you take a foot off the top, it also took it off the bottom. They hadn't planned for that so much. So we got the lowest lake eight foot <laughs> a couple of years later. Uh, and then they learned that they had to be careful where they move these bottom and top numbers. We're right in the end of it. Uh, it will probably all be done by uh, November or December of this year, 2021. And then it will go through the legislative, the process of uh, takes with the core, and it'll be put in effect in November of 2022. Problem is they're trying to go back to 17 and a half feet on the top side. Good reason for it. They just spent a billion dollars strengthening the Herbert Hoover Dyke so they could raise the water in the lake. And uh, in case there was a hurricane or something, the dike wouldn't uh, break. For, for our listeners, when you talk about going back to 17 and a half feet in the top side, yeah. can you break that down a little bit to give them uh, um, like what, they can better se- understand 17 it. feet from the top of the dike, 17 uh, feet deep? What does that mean? 17, yeah. it means it's sea level. Right. It's about sea level. Uh, they, Dr. Paul Gray, uh, Audubon, and mm-hmm. he, he does a lake and a great guy. And I have supported him, and he has supported me, I guess, because the best level for the lake is 15 feet on the high and 12 foot on the bottom. The lake fluctuates that. We get more marshes, better marshes, cleaner water. Uh, everything's just a lot better. But we all know Mother Nature is not going to let that yeah. happen. Uh, so we fight to try to get those levels as being important into the plan. The bottom level, except for when we have uh, a certain congressman trying to force it down to 10.5 feet every year, which would have been a disaster for the lake because it would have converted all the marshes to woody plants, and uh, it would have been a mud hole surrounded by willows. Uh, and we don't want to do that to Lake Okeechobee. We can help it. Uh, so the other end is, is difficult because the lake is a storage whether we like it or not, it's a reservoir. The utilities, the urban utilities like a high lake. And of course, the farmers like a high lake because it's drought insurance and they lobby hard for a high lake. Farmers catch a lot of blame for it. I'm talking about the Everglades agricultural area south of the Lake Farmers. But the fact of the matter is, it's a big, about 6 million people like a high lake down there because they like to get water when there's a drought. Uh, so I don't see how we can fight the top side being put up there. I don't like 17 and a half, 16 and a half was bad enough. Anything over 15 foot starts damaging the marsh uh, and the vegetation. Last year to When this you say year, damage it is because they're pushing too much water down through the STAs and everything it, else and drowns doesn't it, have time. Drowns yeah. okay. STAs is a big problem. That's, yep. uh, that's, that's another man. We could talk an hour about SDA and lake water. But the lake Last year to this year, just announced it Thursday at the governor board meeting, lost 75% of submerged aquatic vegetation, mm. 20 to 21. Mm. That's 75%. 75%. 75%. And it doesn't have a lot because Irma knocked out about 85% when it went through. Mm. Now, that would be caused by the lake, the, the top being too high, correct? Well, it, it, 
it's caused by a lot of things. Uh, fast moving up and down is a lot of it. But yeah, it, Lakers held too high after Irma for about three years. And it was very destructive. And, and it couldn't get the water out. There was no place to put it. Uh, you, you can't send it south because nine months out of the year, the uh, U.S. Department of Interior blocks all flows about above 7,000 CFS to protect the Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow nesting. Well, that won't last much longer. So, so <laughs> well, it's an endangered species, you know, and the ESA is a uh, tough... Until it's an extinct species, and I'm not trying to be a jerk or upset. <laughs> about it. It, I'm not a biologist, and so maybe there's going to be a miraculous recovery, but how long have we been doing this, and how many other species are being clobbered by this management policy, and yet what's happening to the Cape Side Seas... What's happening to the dang sparrow population no matter what? I don't know why. I don't know if it's man. I don't know if it's nature. I don't know if it's global warming, global cooling. But for whatever reason, that poor sparrow is not long for this universe. It's, it's a bird in the wrong place, a lot of it. But uh, but whatever. The ESA is tough tough not to crack. Yeah. And I don't blame. I mean, I know Larry Williams, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife guy, who's the head of endangered species. Great guy. He's doing his job. The law says I got to protect that bird, so he's protecting that bird. So anyway, the problem with the lake is, is we can't get the water out the bottom in uh, fast. Uh, and there's another little glitch that sometimes is difficult. I've never found out why. All the bottom of the lake exits are about six thousand cfs. Why? Because at the top of the lake. We had 30,000 CFS coming in doing IRMA. What is CFS? Cubic feet per second flow. It's a measure of flow. In January 2016, when we had the other big algae bloom big time over in the estuaries, we had 18,000 CFS coming in, and only 6,000 can go out. So if the lake is setting anywhere near 14, 15 feet, and you got that much water coming in, the Corps doesn't have any choice. They can't let the lake get up high and dangerous. They've got to open up the gates to the C-43, C-44. And that blows out the Caloochahatchee and the, and the uh, St. Lucie. So uh, there's that dilemma. Uh, people talk about why is the water not going south? Well, there's, there's two blockages. There's a blockage at the bottom of the lake for some reason. Never understood why there's not at least an 18,000 CFS structure at the bottom of the lake. And there's a blockage at the Tamiami Trail that is strictly the U.S. Department of Interior up to nine months of the year to protect the Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow. So the system is like blocked. And uh, when you block it at the south end, guess what? Everything go, fills up north all the way up. It's a dilemma. But if we just talk about the lake itself, uh, we need to keep the lake between 12 and 15 feet or as close to that as possible knowing that Mother Nature is going to throw us a curve from time to time. It takes a minimum of three years for the lake to recover from like an Irma or a September 2016 when the lake is held too high for three or four months. And uh, after Irma, it was a year. So if you don't have that recovery time before the next incident comes along, then the lake never gets better. That's the problem that we're dealing with Losum. That's what they call this one, Lake Okeechobee Systems Operation Manual. It'd be the new name coming out. Some of us, a lot of us, see real dangers that the lake is going to be held too high, too long, and it will destroy uh, our, most of the vegetation that's in the lake today. Where the fish spawn, 
which cleans the water. And that is a little bit of a battle that's going on. The Corps, and, and I, I talked with the colonel yesterday, the new colonel, the first day on the job. And uh, my favorite thing was uh, Colonel Kelly, who just retired. And he, after three years, they do three-year terms. And I thanked him for his service. And I said, for the rest of your life, every time you hear the words Lake Okeechobee, a certain smile is going to come to your face <laughs> because it is a really difficult subject for the colonels to deal with the Corps. Uh, and we respect them for the difficulty they have. But the lake, the lake, the lake, that's what I say. If we make the lake right, the estuaries will be okay, and the water going south will be okay. But when we talk about making the lake right, as you just did a really good job, I think, of describing there's a problem. Like Stewart is in the way. You know, I mean, like they have all these places that if you wound, if you go back 150 years ago, uh, it wouldn't have been a problem because a lot of these places weren't there. The dikes were, uh, the dikes, when they built, you know, the, you know, the dikes were after the 19 whatever hurricane. So yeah, 150 years ago, nature took care, you know, things might die or things might live, but nature settled itself out. And right now we can't have that. And And you have this policy of, we don't want people to get flooded out. We don't have, certainly don't want to have a catastrophic failure of the lake because millions of people would die. And, and that, those goals are often at loggerheads with what's the, necessary to have a healthy lake. The ecology. The last time the lake was basically on this old floodplain was in 1947. Everything we deal with today was built after 1947, planned, designed, and built to keep that from ever happening again. And it has. It's worked. We've never had water all the way over to US 1, you know, out of the lake. The lake was like a puddle in a parking lot originally. It, would, it, would, it wouldn't get a lot deeper. It just ran out over a giant floodplain. And literally did go from the eastern ridge, US 1, on its own today, and the Flagler Reglo, because the engineers knew where the high ground was. And that lake would go all the way over to the ridge on, to, on the west coast over to Cluiston. Uh, so it was like a, a water in a popular, uh, parking lot. And it expand, and, and then it would run off south uh, down through the Everglades uh, at, a, at a leisurely pace. Had to be over 20 feet to go over the berm that was at the south of the lake. Now, uh, today the lake is, it, it rarely ever gets over 17 feet. So naturally that flow is all gone because we have the cuts. The Calusa has to cut. And, water will run out of the lake before it gets that high. So as a, the system we have today was built basically after 1947. The most destructive thing done on the lake was when they channelized the Kissimmee River. Mm. That poured all the muck and, and nutrients and everything from a 700 square mile basin into the lake at a rapid speed. Was it uh, a 30,000 CFS during a storm. I yeah. mean, that's just carrying out. Well, you can go watch a river running real fast. You see what's going with it versus when it's green and running slow. Most destructive thing. It's put 500 tons of pure phosphorus, pure phosphorus, not fertilizer, the real chemical phosphorus into the lake every year. That's an incredible amount of nutrients. And that don't count nitrogen. And it don't count all the muck. Where's that phosphorus coming from? Is that a lot of that just natural runoff? Because you mentioned that's not counting the fertilizer. And then as I understand it, because you have you have phosphate 
a lot of phosphate in Florida, as I understand it, that some of the channeling may have actually gone not, to historic not, phosphate Well, that's, some is people that say that. I, I don't buy into that. The, the phosphorus is on the other side of the ridge in the boneyard over there. Okay. But uh, it's acceleration that's the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, the water moves faster. I mean, there's no more cattle than there were 100 years, 50 years ago. You know, there's no more farming than there was 50 years ago. But the water runs across those fields faster than it did 50 years ago because of the Kissimmee was channelized. Uh, so it's more velocity problem, and we need to slow the flow. I think you hear that occasionally. Uh, I mean, that's a kind of a slogan that we use a lot, uh, slow the flow uh, going into the lake, and also storage. We need some storage, more storage. But the lake has already got so much legacy, it is a problem to itself that is going to have to be addressed. And, and the legacy is the phosphorus that's currently stored 50, in the muck at the 50 bottom. 50 years of muck and phosphorus and nitrogen. And literally, it'll take 50 years to clean it up if we start it tomorrow. And you cannot take it out of the lake. We tried this back when 2006 or whenever the lake was low. They loaded it on the trucks, trucked it up, you know, piled it up, and they let it dry. And the EPA and the FDEP comes in and says, uh-uh. When that stuff goes to powder, it's, it's, it's chemically hazardous. You have to spend millions of dollars to get rid of it. You cannot put it over the dike into the fields or, or send it out of the lake. What are they doing in Lake Apopka? Because as I was under the, maybe, maybe you don't know, and from what I understand from having a chat with a couple of, of uh, I don't know if biologists is the right term, that our, our water quality in Lake Apopka right now is actually better than what exists in Lake Okeechobee. I wouldn't doubt that. <laughs> but as I understand, a lot of that came because they've been, they've been hauling gizzard shad out of there by the metric ton. And they bought up a bunch of the cornfields. And if I'm not mistaken, haven't they been dredging the lake and piling the stuff up in the old cornfields to let it I, I, I don't a half know about Lake Apaka. I, I do know that uh, what is happening is positive. Yeah. Uh, when I first went there uh, some years ago, I actually did the, the tour with Audubon when they first set up the, the, the road on the north side. And uh, we, we did that tour that day. And uh, full of ducks, I might add, even yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the problem with Apaka is vegetable farming is extremely nasty because you got the metallic uh, fungicides. I mean, obviously, they have a nice red tomato with no spots on it, you know, or a nice ear of corn where every ear of corn is there. Uh, and, all, and in Florida, there's every kind of bug and animal and plant disease uh, in the world. It, in order to have that marketable product go out, uh, you have to use a lot of uh, pesticides and uh, fungicides and stuff. So that's what happened in the pocket. They just loaded, you know, they had to do what they had to do to get the product out. And, of course, water drains off those fields. It goes into the marsh and the lake, and the lake just got hot. It just got so hot that it was toxic. Uh, fortunately, we don't have that situation, I don't think, anywhere else in Florida. I think it was the only place that got that way. So uh, over the years, it's getting better. I mean, it does dissipate over time. And that's why this meeting is so important, because if we can keep that hydrilla in that lake, uh, it will continue to at least get the nutrients down yep. and get the nutrients down to a level. Uh, and the other stuff over on the north shore, the pesticides, that's another story. Uh, it's a slow go, and hopefully in time that will clear up. I try not to get too involved in the spring discussion because it's another one of those things that you just can't win. But I'm going to do it on the Popco with the whole idea that if you go spray that stuff, what's going to happen? It's going to die. It's going to sink to the bottom, and it's going to start to recreate some of 
what was causing the disaster in Lake Apopka in the first place, and that is the muck, right? So we, Lake Apopka is one place that I think, I know that there's always, and people differ. That place needs to be let go. We need the, whatever will grow there. If hydrilla grows there, then hallelujah. What do they say in, uh, in frozen? Is it let it, let it grow, let it grow, let it grow? <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don't play with it. Well, you ori- we originally started this with the, 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 the big issues on duck hunting. Uh, and, of course, Lake Okeechobee is the big issue with the losum and the core. Uh, the second biggest issue is the uh, spray of our water uh, bodies uh, by a combination of agencies. Don't get mad at just the FWC because the Corps does it and the counties do it, the water management districts do it. Everybody sprays our waterways with uh, these uh, chemicals to kill the uh, the weeds, or they call them. Uh, sometimes I call it duck food. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, we have a problem because we do have the floating vegetations. We have floating vegetation which will literally take over a lake. Uh, uh, the uh, hyacinth and the water lettuce are, are particularly difficult. They're very bad around structures. They, they're bad for nav- navigation. I mean, the bass fishermen like edges, but they don't like the whole thing to be covered. Crappie fishermen, they don't want any. They like the edges. They sure don't. Uh, you know, the spider pole fishermen, they don't want anything at all. So, And the sh- shoreline landowners, they want to see water. They don't want to see green vegetation uh, out there in their back off their backyards. So the stakeholders are there who like the spraying, and they are very vocal. Uh, the stakeholders like duck hunters, we don't like spraying, and our voices are, you know. We few, want it green. Or <laughs> limited. The anglers for a long time were supportive of the spraying, particularly the bass uh, tournaments and stuff. But they're learning, and we're getting more and more uh, people in the uh, anglers who are saying, hey, you know, maybe we need to cut back on this spraying, and uh, we hope that that will kind of slow it down. But I'll be the first to tell you, having traveled to countries where they don't have any money to, to maintain their rivers and lakes and stuff, you got to have some type of control over water lettuce and hyacinth. Otherwise, you literally, you can't get through. I mean, you see these mud motors? running around with duck hunters today, you know where they mm-hmm. come from, don't you? They come from Thailand. Thailand. You know why they come from <laughs> yeah. Thailand? You ever been to Thailand? They don't have any control because over the water. every lake and river and everything over there is solid vegetation, and you can't run a boat anywhere in the whole freaking country except where the fast rivers are. So uh, there has to be some compromise. Yeah. It's hard to say, but how are we going to reach that compromise is, 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 as I say, the challenge, the second challenge that I was going to mention tonight. And that's it. How are we going to do the uh, control of our aquatic vegetation? I know they say mechanical, wonderful. Works great around docks, works great in small areas, but you can't mechanically remove a, a small barge of material from the middle of Lake Okeechobee and transport it and get it to the bank. It becomes expen- extremely expensive. Yeah, it, just, it, just, it just doesn't logistically work. And uh, we said it at the Lake Harris meeting, and the biologists tried to explain to the people there that we're all about the mechanical harvesting, that right now, based on the number of harvesters that they have available and their budget, that they would never be able to stop harvesting. And in fact, they can't harvest 
fast enough because of the growth rate of the aquatic vegetation. Yeah, what they have to tell you, there's no way they could keep right. up. And uh, the, of course, the problem, there's problems with harvestings too. You know, you chop the stuff up uh, and it's still alive and you basically spread it. I was uh, say where the where the poison, at least the chemicals, kill it. Uh, the problem, of course, is it falls to the bottom. Uh, but then if you let it grow, it still dies off from the bottom and falls, uh, of the plant and falls to the bottom. It, it's a dilemma. It is not easy. And, uh, and I, I have no uh, difficulty uh, sympathizing with any position anybody might yeah. have on it. <laughs> it definitely is a tough subject because, too, it just kind of came to mind, too. You got to think that even us harvesters have to lose some to the bottom. Like, they're, they're not yeah. getting every single right. little bit of what they're cutting. That's so. correct. That's correct, and, and and if you don't cut it, it dies on the bottom, and then yep. it, and if it, it, the muck is muck, uh, however it comes, but uh, it, it, is a, it is a difficult uh, situation. There's no easy answer, and uh, scientifically, uh, if you're going to go out and clean the water up so you can see it, the best way to do it is with chemicals and with helicopters and whatever. Uh, if you want clear, clean water, I'm talking about clear, not anything yeah. to see. The water itself could be pretty brown or, or gray. Uh, and that's what they face. And uh, the FWC and all these agencies, believe me, they, they don't like what they're having to do. I don't know a single one of them that likes to put any chemical in the water that kills them. They didn't hire on. They don't get paid very much money yeah. in those jobs, incidentally. They hire them. They go to work as biologists because they love biology they love the plants and the animals it's a, a part of their life and they don't want to be destructive so it's a very difficult it's a dilemma and and they they do put a lot of time and study and effort into you know what they can put in and what's going to be best to put in the water and i think they, people just kind of freak out and don't don't forget to see that well, they, they care and that they're not just going to put any old chemical in the water they're going to do all their research on it they're going to find the lesser of the two evils that they can use. I, I have never met one that didn't try to do the best they could to protect the ecology. But they know it, it, the challenge is is we have to have some level of open water in the lakes and rivers and streams. And how do we maintain that? And harvesting will work in some places, but our, we are blessed with incredible large numbers of marshes and lakes and streams in Florida. And the, the numbers of acreage is hundreds and millions of acres. And it's just impossible. The lake itself is a half million acres. Uh, you can't run harvesters on a half million acres. And it just won't work. But you also need to be thinking about, gee, I don't want to put 50 gallons of chemical when I can get by with 15. Yeah. That's the key. Yeah. So I'd kind of, shortly touched on this earlier but you know what is your standpoint on quotas well i i'm i'm on the as you probably know the fwc quota permit uh committee tag i guess technical advisory group or whatever we rewrote the totals quota system about 10 years ago and uh i i feel pretty good about it because the uh comments are usually pretty favorable, particularly compared today to what we had 10 years ago. Uh, we're looking at it again. It's a time to review, and 
at this point, not much has been done. I think we've had one meeting. COVID has slowed down most everything. I, one thing that I usually don't mind bragging about and taking it credit for is I fought for that guest permit really hard. If we were going to take away transferability, which we did, which caused a tremendous amount of uh, pain, and I, I've said we have to be able to allow a person to take their son, grandson, friend, or somebody hunting, because who likes to just go hunting by themselves? Yeah. Not a lot of people. Right. Yeah, especially uh, duck hunting. And uh, the best thing, I mean, that test permit also, uh, with the no-shows that you get with permits uh, automatically, when you have a permit, one permit for one person, you have a no-show, then that slot is gone. But if you have permits where people bring in guests, then the number of people actually going on the property goes, you know, kind of holds up because there's two people out there on some of those permits. So that has worked. Uh, I, I hear very few complaints. Of course, everybody says, I didn't get one. Well, we all <laughs> complain. We don't, I, don't, I, I got two SDA permits this year, and they were pretty lousy and so far. But we're looking at it. Uh, I think there'll be a chance for the public to comment. We want to hear from the from the hunters. Uh, and I think, as again, I'm on the left-hand side. I think I mentioned earlier on today. Yes, sir. I'm a guy on the left-hand side. Get rid of all of them, you know. <laughs> Open up everything to everybody. Let everybody hunt. That's my starting point. I start there because uh, I, I grew up in areas that had no quarter. I mean, I mean you went hunting. Public land, you went out there and hunted. You know, whatever the season was, whatever. But I understand in Florida, you know, it's, it's different. Never, I always tell people, don't come down here in, in northern my Florida, you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's good reason for quotas. Uh, and it's important that we have what we call, uh, they don't like to hear me say it, but romping stumps where there are no quotas, like Corbett. Uh, guy killed a big buck out of there the other day, I might add. Uh, and it's a romping stump. I mean, it just, anybody wants to go out there and hunt any time. And the buggies and the whole smear. So you have to have a, some of that so people who don't get a quota have a place to go. Everybody have to have a place to play, kind of my slogan. Yeah. So uh, it's a mix. It's a mix. And, and Dupree, which bait, butts up to Corbett, it's one of the most highly restricted hunting public hunting areas in the state. Uh, and it has great hunting. And it's just right next to Corbett. It borders it. So... Uh, that's the way you like to see it. You got a place right next door that's highly restricted to a place that's wide open to anybody that wants to go. Pick up the gun on Saturday morning with the boy, 12-year-old boy, say, boy, let's go hunting. You got to have places where they can do that without any red tape restrictions or quotas. And uh, spontaneous, that's yeah. the key. Now, so it's a mix. You got to have a mix. And, and I think we're going to pretty well stay with what we got. I think it's working pretty good. You think like maybe in some spots uh, – almost like a daily quota would be better to replace some of the quotas where like, you know, it's, it's kind of like Seminole forest for our, our small game hunts. They allow 72 people or whatever. And the first 72 that show up, get that permit. You know, you're not applying for it, but it's the first people that show up, get that permit. Oh, I, I it works, but as you know, it, it makes lines. It, it, yeah. makes, it makes lines. And, uh, we, we, we bump into that every, every time we bump into lines, the people that don't get in, uh, it's the same old story. Get I didn't get a quota, yeah. or I was at number 73, and I didn't get in. So you're going to have a problem when you have the demand is higher than the, than the resource. And that's, I, I just, 
prefer not to have any quota at all, which and let them go. It's <laughs> backing up. I wish I'd thought of it earlier. And I don't know if you're familiar with the process, but are you familiar going back to the management of weeds and, and muck and things like that? Are you, are you familiar with the, the process that uh, Mike Elfenbein and uh, um, I forget the other gentleman's name are talking about with the idea? I don't understand. They have a, they have a patented process where they can, they have a harvester that essentially goes on an airboat. It, it has the ability to liquefy the plants and whatnot. Then what they need is they need places to grow hay because the hay holds the nutrient, holds that nutrient heavy liquid, <laughs> you know, the, the, the stuff they don't know exactly how they make it in place long enough for then the, the hay itself to absorb up the nutrients. And of course the hay can be used for all kinds of other applications. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I'm very familiar. In fact, I'll be seeing Mike tonight. He's his he's he's on our lease up next to our farm, oh, and he's up there cutting paths, shooting paths today. Uh, yeah, Mike has got a pretty good system there. It uh, it will work. Uh, again, it's it's like mechanical. It, it it is a source of a type of mechanical, so it's limited in the in the scope of what it, it can do versus a helicopter spraying you know 500 acres in 30 minutes. So, but yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a good idea. Uh, the secret is, of course, you got to find a place to put it. Uh, the hay? You have to find a place to put the, uh, the chopped up merchandise. And that's, I mean, the chopped up uh, vegetation. And they've done that. They found a ranch for, for this test. They found a rest next to the lake. Uh, I hope they get their test. I hope it runs. I hope it works. And, and it has possibilities. Well, Newton... It's been a pleasure having you here this evening. Before we let you go, you got you got to tell us at least one funny hunting story. Uh, well, probably some of them I shouldn't tell, but uh, they uh, there was a time down there near Snow Lake, Arkansas, when my uncle was there, and, and uh, he was bound to determine go see this uh, pea picker who was uh, lived in a trailer over at the bottom of the White River Refuge on the hunting camp and it was probably about 10 degrees we were there duck hunting and he had this brand new ford pickup truck it's probably the first new car I ever bought in his life new truck and we commenced to leave camp it's all mud of course of course most of it was frozen and uh to work our way over there to this place in the middle of the woods on uh, logging road and we actually made it under the railroad trestle, which is where normally you get stuck because uh, it's uh, mucky under that trestle. We got up on the other road, and we didn't get far till he stuck that truck up, his new truck. He would not muscle that truck. And I called him, Earl, come on, we got to get out of this ditch. A hole. He just would not muscle it to get it out. And you have to really muscle to get out of some of those places. Closed the door, said, we'll walk down to the camp, spend the night. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm about 17, 18 years old, and I, I'm not looking forward to walking a mile in 10-degree weather down a mud road, but we did. And we got down there to the camp, and, of course, the old boy down there started laughing. He, he got his truck. He said, we'll go get you out. Well, getting him out, he dent his fender. Oh, my uncle. I thought he was, he's going to cry. But you know what? 
after he got that dent in that fender, he muscled that damn truck anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's that first dent that mattered. That first yeah. dent counts. Yep. <laughs> so that's the story for the day. <laughs> that's a good one. All right, guys. I've enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. Well, yes, as we close out every episode, we like to do the tip of the week, and I'll lead us off this week by saying that uh, just have respect for your your fellow outdoorsmen and those that participate in the outdoors, uh, whether that be you know knowing your distance, your shooting lanes, and whatever else. Yeah, uh, Newton, you wanna you wanna give us a tip real quick, and then we'll send y'all out the door. Oh, tip tip of the week. Well, duck hunting is coming. Scout. Absolutely beautiful, Man, easy. My tip of the week is uh, is really get involved. And I, I mean, get involved. It's uh, before this podcast that Newton was kind enough to come up and join us on. He was also at our pig roast. And we put that together in about five weeks, start to finish. We managed to get over 50 people to come up and support uh, both Under Pressure Outdoors, but more importantly, Operation Outdoor Freedom that takes veterans out. And I said, wow, what did it take? It took the will to say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go and buy a pig. We're going to go get a park, have people join us, use social media, a couple of emails and texts, and say this is what we're going to do. And then we asked friends for help. We had the guys from Common, Common Man, Man Outdoors, Outdoors donated, donated us a bow. That was, that, was, yeah. that was a home run. Yeah. You know, but um, you know, through Joey Lyon, who's also on the – you know, Waterfowlers Board, we had an opportunity to get a cooler at a pretty good rate that we then tricked up with a whole bunch of other good stuff that we raffled off, and we made those guys a little over a 1000 bucks. Florida Boy Outfitters threw us a little bit in there. Oh, man, too. I don't want to leave anybody out. Yeah, there's so much support. <laughs> uh, man, we had guys come down from Save Robin Reservoir, Ducks Unlimited. It was a – we had U.S. Forestry. It was just people everywhere. And it all was mainly word of mouth, Facebook and things. It really wasn't that hard. Yet, we had great camaraderie. We're celebrating the start of the hunting season. We commemorated the fact that today was September 11th, and that nearly 3,000 people lost their lives. And then, we raised money that hopefully helped somebody make a difference. But it wasn't that hard. It just takes, the tip of the week is, you can do it, just go do it. Jordan, Briar? I got one. I would say if... And not just, you know, United Waterfowlers, although would support them. Pick an organization, Duck Bud, it'd be Ducks Unlimited, National Wild Turkey Federation. Well, join all of them if you got the money, you know, to donate and help out. Because not only, so if it's good for ducks, it might be good for something else. You know, duck, it's not just about, it's about all of wild Florida and wild America. It's like I said, if it's good for quail, it might be good for another species. So join something like that, you know, put your money where your mouth is. If you like to hunt and you want to take, give back some. Let's say put in the time to get your friends, other people, new people in the outdoors. Could really change a person. Absolutely. Well, I'll put some links down there in the bottom of the podcast description where you guys can find uh, United Waterfowlers. I'll put their uh, website, their Facebook page. You guys can get on there and donate, become part of the groups they got on Facebook and uh, join the conversation. Until next week, Newton, I, I really appreciate you joining us and hope you have, we'll have a safe trip home. Thank you. It was great fun. Yes, sir. Thanks, sir.